by the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering chemical since January 5th of 1971. And I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, I know I'm too young and too pretty to have that much time. (laughs) But uh, I'm delighted to be here. I want to thank Joanne for asking me. And I love to do retreats. And I'll tell you why I love to do retreats. Because lives change at these. If you've been coming, you already know that. If you're new, you're about to experience it. And it may be your life. This is a place where God lives intensely. And I'm really grateful about that. And uh, I'm really grateful any time I have. I actually don't have a retreat business. I'm a pastor, which is kind of a retreat business, I guess. <laughs> but don't hold that against me. Heard my talk first. You know, it's kind of you got to apologize for being a pastor anymore. You never hear any good jokes either. <laughs> no, you don't. It's like I'll be talking. I'll be at a convention or something. And I always like to go by Ed. You know, Ed's the way I got sober, and that's the way I like it. But, a lot of people call me reverend and pastor, and I always say whatever's comfortable to you. I, you know, I, I want you to be comfortable. And it's funny, I'll be in some place talking, and somebody will come up and say, Reverend Ed, how are you? And I'll turn back to that person, and all of a sudden the conversation totally changed. <laughs> well, you know, I go to church every Sunday. You know? <laughs> or I've been thinking about it. I say, you know, don't get guilty on me. That's not, <laughs> you know, that's your deal. That ain't my deal. But it's really funny. It's really funny. A little, I would have never believed that I'd be a pastor. Jeez, I'm telling you. Well, you'll know pretty quickly. And I thought what I'd do tonight is tell you my story because one of the things that's important to me is when somebody's talking to me about their steps, about the steps, and I am not an expert. You know, I am blessed to be doing this over 35 years, and that's, that's wonderful. But all I am is a guy who's got some experience, strength, and hope that I want to share with you. Uh, if your sponsor tells you something different, excellent. They're probably right. You know, I'm not here to cause what, what a good friend of mine says, Ed, your job is to comfort, uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, I guess that's what I do. You know why? Uh, Because uh, we're losing more people out of AA than we've ever lost before. For the first time in our history, AA's membership flatlined last year. Flatlined. There was no growth. Now, that's never happened before. And one of the reasons it's happening is we're losing people from both ends. Well, I believe we lose people when they come in uh, to a treatment center and they're told a lot of things are AA that aren't AA, and they get into the psychology of sobriety, which is a wonderful thing. It's just not Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, And they get that honestly confused. So one of the things I hope to do this weekend uh, is is bring some clarity into how I understand that. Not that it's right, not that it's wrong. It's certainly right for me. It's certainly right for me because uh, my best thinking is what got me here. The finest ideas I could come up with got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was taken to my first AA meeting when I was 10 years old. I've got a brother in uh, Newberry, South Carolina, sober 44 years. He's so dry we don't let people smoke around him anymore. You know, he's like, poof, he'll go up in flames. And he took me to A&A. God, and I remember going to A&A and there was some old guy up here about 20, 25 my name's Fred and I'm an alcoholic and I thought good for you Fred you know and I just didn't particularly care for it plus they lied to me they lied to me right off yeah everybody says oh I've never been lied to an A well I have still hear the lie still hear the lie they said to me if you keep drinking and using you're going to die and you know what I thought excellent where do I sign up because I was tired of living already I wanted a way out Dying didn't scare me then, but for a whole set of different reasons. 
It doesn't scare me today, I promise you. just doesn't at all. Because if I've ever had a chance to go into that other place or in the other room, it's an owl. So uh, I remember a few years ago, I had a heart problem. I was up in the North Woods in northern Wisconsin chopping trees, which I did every year. And for the first time, I went down with bad chest pains. Being a good alcoholic, I waited to the end of my vacation to, to go to the doctor. We don't want to rush into anything. And uh, went down there, and he took me through all these tests, and he was, he was doing uh, all the nuclear stuff and all that. He called me into his office. on It was on a Monday night because I had to go in Tuesday. And he called me in and he said, Ed, he said, you know, your heart is not in good shape. He said, you've had a massive heart attack before. And he said, the upper part of your heart isn't doing too well either. And he said, we need you in here at 5 o'clock in the morning. He said, go home and get your affairs in order. And I said, well, okay, okay. And he said, Ed, do you get the gravity of what I'm talking about? He said, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I said, Ed, I don't think you understand. <laughs> he said, I need you to go home and make sure all your affairs are in order. I said, yeah, I get it. I get it. And he said, no, no, I don't think I do. I said, Doc, you don't get it. You're threatening me with heaven. And he looked at me and said, well, I never heard of it that quite that way before. I said, that's the way it is, baby. <laughs> I'm clean. Whatever i got to do, I'll do, you know. But isn't that a wonderful way to be? It just doesn't scare me anymore. Now, oddly enough, you can make of this what you wanted. Prayers went out for me all over the world. And they asked what I wanted prayed for, and I said, the people who love me, because this is awfully quick. And if something should happen, their hearts will be broken. I said, I want you to pray for them because they really love me well. And they didn't listen to me. They prayed for a healing, and I went into the hospital that next day, and they all of a sudden put me up on the angioplasty. And if you've ever had one of those fun things, they, they run a, a camera and all that up your groin and uh, the vein, and you can watch yourself on TV, which I wanted to see. And uh, the doctor's pumping away on this heart thing, and he said, Eddie said, I don't get it. And I said, what don't you get? He said, your heart's perfect. You've got the heart of an 11-year-old. He said, we must have made a mistake. I said, well, you call it what you want. I'll call it what I want. Have a good day, Doc. <laughs> and to this day, whenever I see Dr. Corn, he goes. <laughs> but anyway, that's the way the weekend's going to be. I don't use notes. Uh, not that I think I'm brilliant. I just want the Spirit to lead me wherever we need to go. And I want to be in tune with what the room needs. And I believe everybody puts off an energy. It's a good energy or a bad energy. I don't hang around much with bad energy because I just don't want to play. I used to love bad energy. I used to be a creator of bad energy. Uh, but I started drinking at a very early age. I don't know when I started drinking. Dad used to think it was funny to give me a drink and get me drunk when I was a kid. I was the youngest of seven, and I come from a very elite group of people called White Trash. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, there were certain things that were expected of us, and by gosh, we came through with all of them, you know. And, and we were just a, a group that the cops were at the house every week, and I hated life going in. I hated life going in. I don't know about you, but I had this sense that there's something wrong with me, that I'm somehow different. There's something wrong with me. Now, oddly enough, 35 years later, I think of it, is there something right about me? There's something different. Isn't that amazing? See, my biggest problem going is, is I started to conform to what you thought I should be. And you know what they thought I should be? They thought I should be dead by the time I'm 20. They thought I should go to prison the same way my brother was in prison. They thought all those things, and I thought, okay, guess they're right. I started doing something then 
that I carried into my sobriety, and I have to be very careful today not to do it. <clears throat> and I call it my 299 to 1 theory. I could walk into a room with 300 people, 299 could turn around to me and say, Ed, you're the best. We love you. One could go, <laughs> jerk. Guess who I remember? I'd set up in bed three nights later going, <laughs> why would they say that? Why would they think that? Even sober? What? Well, Somebody doesn't like me? <laughs> now, I'd beat you to death when I was out there on the street, but God forbid you didn't like me, you know. And, and, and I would collect those ones in my life. It got to the point of where in my life and in every area of my life, the 299 didn't even exist anymore. It's just the ones that I remembered. That teacher, that teacher in kindergarten, the first day I went to school, smacked me right across the face. Miss Kesick, not that I remember. And um, <laughs> I remember Miss Kesick, but you know, some years ago I was thinking about that. And I remember Miss Kesick well, but I can't remember all the other wonderful teachers that tried their best to help me. They never worked their way into my story. It was the one. Miss Kesick, my kindergarten teacher, and I hated school, but my own choice, all the while I went there. Thank God they booted me out in seventh grade. And I was pleased they did, because I hadn't been paying attention for a couple of years anyway. But I just, I, I was just tired. I got sober at 20 years old. And a lot of people say, oh, that's young. Well, you know, how old do you have to be to die? What is the age limit on that? We were talking at supper, and one of the things I get a kick out of is people go, Oh, it's so good to see you get this so young. <laughs> and I think, you know, if we were cancer survivors, would we go into the hospital of a 16-year-old go, You know, we're so glad you got cancer so young. <laughs> you won't have to hurt like we did. Your chemo will be much easier. What are people that... Well, I know what they're thinking. But isn't that crazy? I... Uh, I had to drink to balance the ones in my life because the ones were killing me. I'd wake up with the ones and I'd blot out the ones and I'd blot them out but you know what had happened that next morning when I'd wake and the terror of the ones. I had a faith long before I got to AA. Now I had a lot of ones about church and about God. I mean to be offensive to no one, please believe me. But my, my feeling about God at a very early age is bring him down, I'll beat the sheet off the punk. If he's a God, why is there starving children? If he's a God, why isn't there any food in our refrigerator? Yeah, you good God is good. Really? Come to my house. You could say I had a little issue <laughs> with God. <laughs> and uh, I, I collected a lot of ones. And you can collect a lot of ones where God's concerned. I remember when I was 10 years old, I had a cousin, Linda. If there was anybody close to God, it was Linda. She was amazing. She was beautiful. She was talented. She was at the top of her class. I couldn't stand her. She just did everything right. And in my heart, she was up here and I was down here. Like my older sister, I used to call her Miss Titsy Pritzel. And I remember making my amends. It's one of the tougher ones I made. I said, I am so sorry that I gave you so much help because you were so kind and so good but I felt I never could compete, so I'd attack you. And she cried. And she said, I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. And I said, no, sis, it's, you were doing everything right. And I did never see me being able to do that, you know. And uh, 
the ones in church, my cousin Linda, was walking across the streets one day and a truck hit and killed her, knocked her 200 feet. And I went to the funeral and people were saying, God must have wanted an angel. And I thought, so he hits you with a truck. I'll pass. You know? You know what? I still do. That's how he makes angels. I'd just as soon not be one. You know? And I started collecting ones. God rips people out of your life. People that you really care about because he thinks they're more needed there. So that was the one in my bag about church. I remember going to church. My mother, God bless her, I used to think she's crazy. She's just stark raving crazy. I'm the youngest of seven children. She had an alcoholic husband. And she'd be sitting there in the house. She'd be coming down. She'd be reading scripture. And I think she's nuts. And I realize now she was the only sane one there. But she had been, thank God, to Al-Anon. And I'm not one of these people that take any shots at Al-Anon. I thank God for Al-Anon. Because... Uh, you gave my mother, you helped give my mother her sanity and peace back. She had a terribly strong faith but was losing it because of alcoholism. And because of the steps and the work she did in Al-Anon, she regained her faith and came back stronger than it had ever been. And in fact, you gave me back my mother. You know? It's funny how when we talk in AA and in Al-Anon, I don't know about you, but I bash, I was a parent abuser. We never mentioned that, but I was, I'd tell you what they didn't do for me. But I was a horrible kid. I was a challenger. My mother told me no, I'd stay on her till she broke down in tears and would say, for crying out loud, Ed, just go do it. You're going to do it anyway. And I'd laugh. <laughs> and I got the nerve to come in here and tell you I didn't have good parents. No, my parents had a big problem. They had a real rotten kid. And it wasn't about me being alcoholic. It was about me being an ad having a bad attitude by choice and mixed alcohol in with it. You know, I don't want to blame all my defects of character on my ism. It was on my personality and a lot of choices I made as well. That's why when I get sober, that's why a lot of people in my experience have a lot of trouble because they do a pretty good job of handling the booze problem. But these other monsters come creeping up on them and get them by the throat. And then they're saying, what's this all about? Well, there's a lot of areas of our life. In my understanding, we got to work these steps in every area of our life. That's what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Because I promise you this, whatever area of your life you're not working this program, it's the one that owns you. It's the one that owns you or will own you. It's just that simple. And uh, I remember I'd go to church, and there was some guy set up front. All spiritual people have thin blue lips, talk like this. <laughs> Ministers, rabbis, priests, you name it, all talk like this. And there was this guy sitting in the front row. He had thin blue lips, too. And I looked at him, and I thought, you know, he looked a lot happier in the bar last night. <laughs> he really, he re, honest, he really looked a lot happier. And I don't know who that grumpy broad is he's sitting with, but the gal he was with last night seemed to be a lot more fun, too. And he'd sit there and go, and you know what I thought? Hypocrite. Now, I know you're not this sick, but I was. I didn't only judge that guy and his wife in that row. I judged an entire organized religion by my little narrow mind and my little narrow point of view for years. Absolutely for years. You see, I had my ones. And if I had my ones, reality didn't count. I'd look at my ones. And the ones were what was killing me. 
And uh, so when I imagine my disappointment when I got to AA, and in the old days, they did, I always love people that say, I love the, that spiritual part. There is no spiritual part. The steps are spiritual in essence. There's an intellectual part. But it is a spiritual program. Spiritual, and it's, it's entire... Its entire message is to help you find a relationship with God that you can live with. That's what it's about. It isn't about improving self. It isn't about processing and working through, and it isn't about... It's about surrender. Just the opposite. When I first came into AA, we used to spend a lot of time about humility and smashing the ego at depth. You don't hear that much anymore. Now they call it self-esteem when it's dressed up as ego and self-righteousness. And I deserve this and I deserve that. I don't know about you. That's what got me here. That's nothing new. That's nothing new. Oh, you want me to think about me for a while? Gee, I'll try. You know, don't know how I'll fit that into my busy schedule. But. And not that it can't be helpful. Not that all that can't be wonderfully helpful. But if it's become your God, you got another problem. The answer is still out here. Or here. Rather than here. Man, I, uh, I didn't like my life at all. At the ripe old age of 13, I was arrested by the Iowa Highway Patrol for possession of a sawed-off shotgun. I had a double-barrel 12-gauge and was 14 inches long. And when I pulled that out, my size, I seemed to get a lot of attention. And I seemed to be in charge. And I really liked that a lot. And I remember when the police pulled me over and they arrested me for that. Uh, the cops were going to teach me a lesson because I had a brother in prison. And they said, let's throw him in a hole for a few days, show him what it's like. Let's teach him a lesson. They did. I was a cop fighter from then on. Absolutely. If I saw a badge, I swung. I don't care if you were crossing guard, I'd take you out. You know, just, I would. You can't hurt me as much as you've already have, was my head kill me, I'd be a hero. I'd finally be something in my neighborhood. Cop took me out. Okay. Isn't that amazing? And I believed it. I believed it. So January 5th of 1971, when I found myself waking up in the middle of the street after a car accident, pretending like I was knocked out. I'm not sure why I was doing that, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I didn't have any answers. I didn't have any cute comebacks. Oh, I found those again later in AA. We'll talk about sarcasm this weekend uh, because I became an expert at it. I was running away the very people that loved me the most with this charming little mouth. And, uh, but I was laying there that night, and I remember the cops coming up, and they said, that's Mutum. Don't touch him. He's the scum of the earth. Don't even cover him. And it was 18 below zero that night. It was awfully cold. And the most amazing thing happened, I didn't have any argument left. I agreed. It was no longer the way I was raised, what I did or didn't have, what my family did or didn't give me, what, how this person or that person treated me, whether I was molested or not, and I'm one of those that was molested and enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm sorry, you know. Uh, it's just not popular to say, but I'm one of those that never had a problem with that. Is it wrong? Sure. But I'm not going to proclaim guilt. I no longer want to find a victim at any given spot or be a victim at any given spot. I realized none of that was valid for me anymore. And uh, they rolled me into the hospital, and some nurse was standing there, and she said, Ed, do you want me to call AA? And I said, 
Might as well. Now, us people who have been around for a while want to know why you new people can't be sincere like we were in the old days. Might as well. (laughs) That was my entry back into AA. Or into AA, because I'd been sent to AA, but I didn't pay it much mind. Those were nice, kind people, but they were a little too old for me. And they weren't quite hip. Excuse me while I take a little break. You want to know the difference between an Al-Anon and an AA speaker? I can show you real quick. An Al-Anon speaker uh, goes like this when she's talking. She goes, excuse me. (laughs) And then an AA speaker goes... (laughs) So let me finish. But but I was laying in there, and they took me into the hospital. And uh, any wine drink, wine connoisseurs in here? I like the good stuff, you know, the stuff with the twist-off caps. I I tried to stay with the the higher line. And uh, Ariba, Mad Dog 2020, Thunderbird. Oh, God, that stuff has never seen a grape ever. You know, just It was so bad. It was so bad I had to hold my nose to drink it. Otherwise, I had another problem, you know. Trouble with that, and I'm one of those, I believe in singleness of purpose, but I also need to tell you that uh, there was nothing I wouldn't take. One word that never, one sentence that never came out of my mouth, a question that ever came out of my mouth is, oh, what will this do to you? <laughs> Mine was, can I more? Yeah, that's pretty good, guy more. At one point in uh, two years before I got sober, I was down to 138 pounds. And when you're at that time six foot eleven, believe me, it's not a pretty sight, especially when you're on crutches and got a back brace. But I, uh, I'm in this hospital and I've been drinking that wine. And if you drink enough of that wine, it has a wonderful thing you get in the morning. It's a little gift from the winery, and it's called the dry heaves. Oh. And then we'll <laughs> now you get a little slobber, you just come up. <sighs> and you do that about three times, and then you get the toenails. <laughs> the good news about that is you're just about done, you know? And then I wandered back, and I was sweating like I'm sweating now from doing my dry heaves, and... I got back in the bed, and this guy came in. His name's Hap, short for Happy, and he's from AA. And he said, Hi, Ed, my name's Hap. I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, get out of my room. And he said, We don't drink, and we don't use one day at a time. And I don't know why I got honest that day. I don't know why. Maybe it was just my time. I said, I can't make it a whole day without something. Because when this starts, and this starts, it's got to go. And he said, Ed, all we have to do is try. All you have to do is try. And that's the only thing I've done consistently from that day to this is try. Try to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And don't drink. One day at a time. And for me, not take anything of a mood-altering nature. And that hasn't changed even with the wonderful recent discoveries that they come up with about 10 years, every 10 years where we lose a whole hunk of our membership because the experts found out another way. I simply say this, if you're chemically addicted, you're chemically addicted and chemicals won't help you. That's been my experience. I remember he, uh, 
he said that, and that's my sobriety date. And from that date uh, to this, uh, I haven't had any vacations. Uh, haven't had any, you know. Uh, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been sober. Now, that's impossible, because I don't do anything consistently except get in trouble. I did that quite consistently. Or cause pain to the people I love. I was very effective at that. But to actually not drink one day at a time. And God bless me because I knew instinctively I had to keep busy. And I did. I just, I would not. Uh, God gave me some great inspiration going in. He said, Ed, if you think it's a good idea, don't do it. <laughs> if you're new, believe me, those are words to live by. If you think it's a real... If you've been here a little while, those are good ideas. If you think it's a good idea, run it past your sponsor. Just a suggestion. Uh, but I knew if I thought it was a good idea to absolutely not do it, and I knew to keep busy. And thank you, God, I kept busy. And I started going to A&A meetings. And, uh, man, I'd walk in there, and, and they were they were just kind of uh, wonderful to me. I remember uh, when I got sober, I had shoulder-length hair, and I always wore dark glasses. And uh, I had a tie-dyed shirt on and jeans and a chain around my waist, a motorcycle chain and a swastika around my neck. I'm not sure why that annoyed people, but it really seemed to annoy them. So <laughs> I had that baby because that would be a fight and that would be fun. And uh, I had my look. I can't do my look anymore. I used to have such a great look. I had a look that would make you back out of the room. It was this little sneer. I remember I was about two, three months sober, and I walked into the meeting one day, and Logan, he buried him with 56 years of sobriety. Logan said, how are you, Ed? And I said, fine, Logan. He said, Ed, why don't you tell your face? It doesn't know. (laughs) I didn't know, you know, so I changed that. I changed that. Over the weekend, you're going to hear me say this a lot. You want a spiritual awakening? Change your mind about a few things. It's that simple. It's that simple. And when he said that, I changed my mind about my look. And I've never had people tell me anymore, God, you're okay. What's wrong? You know? In fact, they smile when they see me. And God, you know, in my worst days of drinking, all I ever wanted to do was feel like I belonged somewhere, feel like we had some sort of connection. And if you're a drunk like me, when you feel so odd, you'll start behaving odd and say it's by choice. That way you got some control. And I, I started going to more and more meetings, and they, they, it was just a matter of time. I knew they were going to bring up that three-letter word. You know which one I'm talking about. I knew it was going to come up. I was about a month and a half sober, and sure enough, somebody turned to me and said, Ed, don't you think it's about time you started thinking about a job? <laughs> I didn't like that idea at all, you know because I was a pretty good thief, and I thought, well, I'm still doing enough to make ends meet. We don't have to get crazy about this, you know. I had to get out of the burglary business because I was pretty easy to identify. It's him, officer. That's what's happening. I, I really felt cheated at the time. I really did. Jeez, I, I can't do anything right. But, uh, th- but then they get through a curve to me. They said, Ed, we're not only talking about cash register honesty. We're talking about emotional honesty. I made a point of not knowing how I felt for a long, long time. And these guys said, you know, you're going to start having to tell us how you're really feeling. And when I sponsor people, one of the requirements I have, and I'm one of those that have requirements, simply because I know how it works for me and how it doesn't. And that's all I know. And that's how we got to do it or I don't know how to do it. But I tell them, you got to call me and you got to be honest with me. 
And if it's a crappy day, just don't try to fool your spine. Oh, it's okay, everything. No, no, I want to hear where you're at. So if you learn how to get out of there, you don't ever have to go back there again. Because I would lie. I would lie when the truth had served me better. Anybody else here? I would just lie. I've got a, a 26-year-old son in Southern California who's a majoring in methamphetamines right now, studying for a scholarship in Narcotics Anonymous. And he, uh, his mother called me when he was 19, and uh, she said, you need to talk to your son, any divorced people. You'll know what that's all about, your son, when it's trouble. And, and I said, oh, why? What's going on? She said, he came home loaded last night. He was wearing shades in the middle of the night, and he was pulling things out of the sky and talking to people that weren't there. And I said, really? He said, yeah. So well, let me talk to him. So he got on the phone. I said, uh, his name's Vici. I said, Vici, how you doing? He said, oh, cool, Dad. Everything's good, man. How are you? I said, good. I said, do you want to tell me about last night? You know what he said? What? <laughs> I said, about the police and about you coming home. He said, Dad, you aren't going to believe this. And I thought, oh, I'll bet you I won't. And he said, I went to Taco Bell and I got a bad taco. And I said, do you have any idea who you're trying to lay this on? And then he won my heart because you know what he said? No, Dad, it's the truth. <laughs> to this day, if I called him up and said, you know, that she a few years ago, the talk about, you know, it's the truth, Dad. It's the kind of liar I was. I would be caught dead and still lie to you. So when they talked to me, oh, Richard Pryor was a, a guy that uh, I always loved his comedy and that when he went out. Uh, he first came out and he used to say a line that I think any person with an addictive personality can identify with he said he was with this other woman and his wife walked in on him this is a true story by the way and his wife walked in on him and she got really upset and he said to her are you going to believe me or your lion eyes <laughs> see I understand that understand that. You're going to believe me or those lion eyes of yours. You know how they've been wrong before. So I had to start being honest. I had to start talking. And then they brought up God and that was a tremendous disappointment to me. Uh, I had a faith long before I got here. I lived it every day, every moment. My faith was life sucks. Uh, Murphy's Law, if something bad could happen, it's going to. It's just a matter of time before something bad happens. That was my faith. I believed it. I professed it. And guess what? It came to be one day at a time. So faith wasn't anything new to me. I just had faith in all the wrong things. And what they said when I come to AA is they said, uh, I said, well, I'm not going to believe in that guy. And they said, well, you don't have to believe in that guy. I said, you can come up with a God of your very own. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. I said, I can make up my own. And they said, yeah. I said, okay. So I thought for a couple of days, very deep in thought. And I come to a meeting and I said, my God's going to be kind and loving and forgiving. How do you like them apples? <laughs> they didn't seem to mind. They kind of giggled like you did. And I thought, see there, they just can't stand an original idea. That's what it is. <laughs> But why I share that with you is that is 180 degrees from anything I ever put about God in this head. I had a lot of ones about God. And none of them was being, about being kind and loving and forgiving. None of it. So that was just 180 degrees from what I'd ever thought about that. And that worked wonderfully for me. But then I made a mistake sober. And I see a lot of people making it. I didn't know it was a mistake at the time. 
I started professing a faith that I didn't have. I had people uh, uh, around me that really talked about God and the eyes are the mirror of the soul, period. Period. And I'd look into their eyes and they'd talk about God and I knew they were telling the truth. I couldn't figure out their angle, you know. But I knew they were telling the truth. So what I did and the mistake I made is I started parroting what they'd say. God's in his heaven all is right with the world. Have you prayed today? <laughs> That's what you want to hear. Some newcomer coming into a meeting and you're ready to kill your boss at work and a newcomer comes up and says, Have you prayed today? <laughs> Thank God I'm as big as I am. They would have took me out, I'm sure. Uh, and, and I didn't see anything wrong with that because uh, after all, those old timers said it. Well, I'm one of those who believe and have indeed experienced that if you, bless you, if you, uh, the only defense you're going to have against a first drink or anything else in your life eventually is a relationship with higher power. That's going to be your only defense. Well, guess what if you don't really have one? I was a little over a year sober. And uh, I, uh, Dad invited me over for dinner. Now, I don't know how it is in your house, but our house was chaos. It had been better. Dad had gone to treatment. He was really trying to stay sober. He was cut down immensely, and Mom seemed to be somewhat happy. And Dad asked me over for dinner. Well, when I got asked over for dinner, it was usually because I was in trouble. And I really didn't want to go, and I went to the rooms, and you guys told me that if anything's going to change in my home, it had to begin with me. I couldn't wait for them to shape up before I'd come back. If I wanted to change things, it had to start right here. And they said, get a new attitude and go to your parents' house for dinner. And if you got something to atone for, atone for. Boy, I'd never thought of that before. And I did. I went there, and I about halfway through dinner, Dad said, boy. And I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. I said, yeah, Pop. He said, just want to tell you I'm proud of you. Now, i got to tell you something. If you're new or if you're used, they, uh, they tell you in AA that miracles happen. And I'm here to tell you that indeed they do. That has been my experience countless times. But my old man telling these prop that didn't even make my list of miracles. That was far beyond anybody's comprehension. And he looked at me that night the way I'd always dreamed my father would look at his son. And it was one of the best nights of my life ever. And you know where I had to go then? I had to go to a meeting. Man, that's good stuff. And I went to that meeting, and after the meeting, I got, went to my sister-in-law's house, and I'm going to move this up just a bit now. went to my sister-in-law's house, and my mother called. She was crying and hysterical and said, Ed, come home quick. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? She said, Dad went across the street to get him a beer and me a quart of a bottle of pop, and now they're carrying bodies out. There's police everywhere. Please come home. And I jumped in my car that night, and I thought, well, God's in his heaven. All's right with the world. Now that i found God, nothing bad can really happen. And I pulled up in front of that bar where I drank from the time I was 11 years old. I'd never, in fact, I've still never had a legal drink in my life. But uh, I, I, I was in there every night till the year before when I got sober. And I went up there and there were more policemen than I'd ever seen ever. And all of them knew me. But it's funny how those cops shaped up that year I was sober. <laughs> yeah, I found out some amazing things. If I don't talk about their heritage, they don't talk about my heritage. <laughs> If I don't talk about their sexual habits, they usually don't talk about my sexual habits. You know? <laughs> Amazing discoveries once you get sober. You don't swing at them, they usually keep their clubs in their holders. You know, <laughs> man, what information. I could have used this a long time ago. And I'd also been working in the courts. We used to have a wonderful relationship with the court system where if a member of AA came in and you had any problem with drugs or alcohol, 
they would simply say, Ed, uh, take Arnie, bring him back in 30 days. Tell us what you think. And people were staying sober in droves. It was just amazing. Then, thank God, the professionals came in and helped us. <laughs> anyway, at that time, it was just amazing. And the, only, the reason I mention that is those cops saw me in court, and they knew I was sober. Nobody believed I could stay sober, especially me. I remember the night of my first year birthday. I prayed, and I said, oh, this is too important. Am I sure? Am I sure? And I tried to think the best I could. Was there any place where I, you know, cheated here, cheated there? And I was just amazed and in tears that there wasn't. I couldn't believe it. And these cops couldn't believe it either, but they saw me often and in court. So when I walked in, I walked up to an officer that was standing there, and he said, Ed, what are you doing here? And I said, my dad was in here. He said, oh, my God, Ed. And I said, why? What's wrong? And he said, Ed, all we know at this point is somebody came in and just opened fire and shot everybody. And uh, I looked down the bar and I saw a pool of blood with my father's glasses all smashed up and mangled and laying in the blood. And I got so sad and I didn't want to know. If you've ever been through anything like that, you know exactly what I mean. I just don't want that information. September 11th, you don't want that information. You turn the TV back on. And it was just horrifying to me. And the most amazing thing happened. I turned to my old arch enemy, the cops, and said, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Because the old me said, get crazy and start taking people out and even the score. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, baby. And I'd been around you for a year. And you taught me to say, I don't know what to do. I know if I do what I think is good, it's not good. What do I do? And he was so kind. He said, Ed, go up to the hospital. He said, some of the people are alive, some are dead, but they're all up at the hospital. And I went up there, and I saw an officer up there that hadn't forgotten my past. And he wasn't kind, and he was very rude, and uh, told me to leave and know in certain terms, called me a few names, and said if I didn't leave, he'd have me arrested for obstruction of justice, that he had identified everybody in there, and my own man wasn't one of them. So I went home, and I called the one guy I would have never believed I'd call ever. And that was the cop that the last five years of my drinking and using tried to put me away. He used to put me in the back of his squad car and say, Ed, if I see you leaving the scene of the crime, or I think I see you leaving the scene of the crime, I'm going to shoot to kill and not stop. And I say, everything's fair in love and war, Joe. And he used to say to me, I'm going to bust you, Ed, and I'm going to bust you straight up. When I get you, you're going away for a long time. And I'd laugh and say, yeah, you come after me, big fella. You know why I called him? He was an honest cop. He could have had me 50 ways from loose if he wanted to. But he was a man of integrity. He told me, I'm going to catch you straight up. That's the guy I called. Hadn't talked to him the year I was sober. Hadn't talked to him before I got sober, really, except those little conversations we used to have in the back of his squad car from time to time. And that's the guy I called. And he said, Ed, what's going on? And I said, Bob, my, my dad was in that shamrock me. He said, oh, my God, Ed, hold on. And he fed me information as he come in. Later, Bob said to me, and Bob, I love Bob. He's a good man. He said to me, Ed, he said, I was so afraid for you that night. He said, I know you'd been so. And he said, with this hitting you and my brother was out of prison, and he was a violent guy like I was a violent guy, he said, I just prayed that you'd be okay. And if you could make it through that, you could make it through anything. He told me one time, he said, you know, I'd get so tired out of being on the police force. He was in the narco division. And he'd say, some mornings I'd get up and I'd just throw my gun and my, my, my badge back in the drawer and say, I can't take it anymore. I just don't even want to go out there. And then he would say to me, Ed, you came to mind, and you've done so well. 
And I thought, well, if Ed can do it, maybe others can do it. Maybe I'll go to work one more day. We never know the effect we're having on people with our sobriety. But he came up with Ed. Uh, uh, the only thing we can come up with is he was taken hostage or he wandered outside. And he's outside somewhere. And it was one of those freezing, rainy nights and just terrible cold. And I'm sure you get him over up here with a quarter-inch ice over everything, you know. And we searched the streets all night. And at uh, 10 o'clock or 8 o'clock the next morning, that officer from the hospital called me up and said, Well, Ed, anybody could have made a mistake. You want to come up and identify your old man? And I said, Okay. And I went up there and I walked into that morgue and I saw my daddy laying there with that bullet hole in his face. And I reached for that faith I'd been professing and I came up with absolutely nothing. Because it was everybody else's experience and none of my work. None of my surrenders. None of my reaching out. And i got to tell you, that was the most terrifying and lonely time I've ever had in my life. But God did for me what I could not do for myself. I opened the door of that morgue and I'd walk out and there were members of Alamon and AA already there. And just the look in their eye, I had a sense that I was going to be okay and that I'm not alone. And uh, I was so grateful for that. You know, a lot of times people say, I don't know what to say. Just look them right in the eye. It tells them everything. Just go. Give them a call. Go wash your dish. Go pick up a kid. Go do a little laundry because they got company coming. Just do whatever your heart tells you to. Nothing is too silly. In fact, the more silly it sounds, probably the more meaningful it's going to be to that individual because that's something God gave, my opinion, gave you uniquely to do. And so I was uh, so grateful that they were there. And immediately the love of A.A. and Al-Anon enveloped me and carried me because I, I was uh, 20 years of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and one year of live and let live. And live and let live was winning, but that... That anger and that rage had just come up after me, and uh, it was just terrible. Uh, eventually, they came to me and said, uh, you got to testify in court because you identified the body and the billfold and all that. And I thought, boy. And then people in AA said, you know, Ed, you might be the only example of AA anybody ever sees, so you got to behave yourself in court. And I thought, what an order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> court was fun time. That's when you stir up the bailiffs, see how many of them it takes you to get you out of there, you know. But I did, because already you had meant to me more than my own self-image. I had been begun to lose myself into a, a something much bigger. And so I went and I, I, I did the impossible. I remember walking into that courtroom, and there was a guy sitting there with his little do and his little uh, attitude, and I thought, you know, you give me five minutes with him, we don't need a trial. In fact, bring all five of the gangbangers in, I'll take care of them in short order. That's what I thought. What I did is I behaved. It's the first time I ever realized that my feelings were not facts. Before then, I would have been over the rail and I would have had that bunk. And no court in the world would have ever convicted me. It's still Iowa's most heinous murder. And please God, it always stays that way. That's one record I'd like to keep. Let that be the worst that ever happened. But I was amazed because I sat there and I answered the questions and I left. And as God would have it, the they all got sentenced, and this guy got uh, three life sentences in 135 years, so I knew he was going to be gone for a while. And shortly after that, God talked to me. Now, you got to be careful when God talks to you. Those sponsors are great God filters, by the way. And if you don't have a sponsor, I, I really strongly suggest you get one. I remember one time I told my sponsor, I said, you know, I got a message from God. He said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. 
He said, well, why don't you share it with me, Ed? So I shared my message with God, from God with him. And he said, you know, Ed, this message from God looks strangely like your handwriting. <laughs> okay. And indeed it was. But I also got to tell you, and we'll talk about it later in the weekend, 86, 87, 88 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous gives you specific in- instructions how to live every second of every moment of every minute of every day and how to have a conscious, consistent contact with God. It's right there in the book. All you got to do is read it and do it. Most importantly, do it. And uh, shortly, well, when God talked to me that time, he said, Ed, go out to California, go into show business. I thought, well, my resume fits pretty good. So I loaded up the car and I went to where all stars get their start, Anaheim, California. Got a job at Disneyland. I was goofy. Little did they know how well I did the role at that point. You know. <laughs> Two and a half years sober, no sponsor, not many meetings. <laughs> I was goofy, you know. And by accident, I went up to this meeting in West L.A. and the meeting was so enthusiastic and they were, they were living Alcoholics Anonymous. They were a living example. I mean, they were taking people to meetings and they knew that 12-step calls was more than verification of insurance or if you could get them into treatment. It was about bringing them into your home. I, I love an AA sometimes. Well, you know, we're not a housing agency and we're not an employment agency and we're not a bank. God forbid, don't read uh, Working With Others because it says just the opposite if the situation is required. But those are just two pe- people who are too damn tight to look past their own nose, in my opinion. And uh, I lost my place. i got to start all over now. My name's Ed and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> but I walked into this room and these people were there and the excitement and the love of life was just in there. It was You could taste it. It was wonderful. And I went up again the next week to see if it was still there. And it was still there. They were hugging and laughing and joking, and they were having a ball sober. And, man, I just, that was so attractive. And this guy came up to me, and I said, excuse me, would you be my sponsor? He said, no, no. I thought, why not? He said, anybody I sponsor has to look up to me. Ha, ha, ha. I thought, oh, good, tall jokes. That's what I need. <laughs> Haven't heard those before. It's always the same two questions by the same size person. First question, oh, how tall are you? <laughs> Six, ten, next question. Oh, do you play basketball? <laughs> and I say, no, how tall are you? And they say, five, four. And I say, do you play miniature golf? <laughs> it's their rules. I'm, not, you know, I'm just trying to get along. But I thought, tall jokes, yeah, that's what I really need to hear. Especially those, how's the weather up there? Oh, that's original. But uh, (laughs) I thought, oh, boy. And he came up to me a few minutes later, shook my hand, and he said, "Uh, if you agree to do a few things, I'll be glad to be your sponsor. My name's Clancy. And I'm forever grateful I didn't hear some of the things that are said about that guy. really am. You know why? I would have believed you and you would have killed me. I was ready to blow my brains out sober. Sobriety sucked big time. I'm doing the best I can, and my guts are all over the floor every day. And I'm looking at Bridge Abutments as I'm driving home, thinking, man, I can't take this sobriety stuff. And if I'd heard some of the things that were said about Clancy, he would have been the last guy on earth I would ever talk to. Thank God I didn't hear him, you know. And that's, that's for gossip. I'm not a big gossip guy. And I hope you... If you have been, you stop. And I'll share two things with you. If you're hanging around with gossip, you need to know, or gossips, you need to know when you leave the room, you're the next topic. The other thing you know is never confide in because they are not trustworthy. 
Now I know that offends some people. That's what the truth does sometimes. But if you're telling other people's secrets, you're going to tell everybody's secrets sooner or later. And I was so grateful because he just looked me right in the eye and I knew he knew. And I didn't ever have to feel this way again. That there was an answer. He knew exactly where I was at. And I would do anything in my power to stay sober and stay sane one day at a time. And he insisted that I started all over on the steps that if I was that crazy, I'd miss something along the way. And I suggested to him that I was two and a half years sober and at that time was an addictions counselor and pretty much the expert on addiction. <laughs> he pointed out to me that if I was that good, I probably wouldn't be living in his garage. Well, he had a point there, so... <laughs> okay, I'll listen. <laughs> and he insisted that... Sponsors are wonderful because they help you do things I would have never asked. I remember when you get a sponsor, you can ask them those questions that just you wouldn't ask anybody else. At least I would. I remember one time I walked up to him and I said, Clancy, how do you be a gentleman? How, how do you do that? And he said, Ed, you act like one. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> you mean you just act? Yeah. Act the way you think a gentleman would act. And I've been doing it ever since. There was no big process that I went through, no inventories I had to write. You want to be a better spouse? Be one. Act like it. Want to be a better wife, better employer, better husband? Act like it. Want to be a better father? Act like it. Talk's cheap. People around me don't say, oh, I'm trying to do this or I'm working on this because I just cut them off and say, all that tells me is you're not ready to make a commitment to do anything. Call me back when you're ready. Call me back when you're ready. Isn't that true? Just means I'm just, if I'm working on it, means I'm just not ready enough to say, oops, I stopped. <laughs> you know, I quit. No more from here, and I'll do whatever it takes not to do that. It's called surrender. And Clancy was amazing to me. He, he helped me a great deal, and uh, he uh, uh, insisted I do things that made no sense to me. He made me shake everybody's hand, and at that time the group was small. It was only 400 people. And... Uh, I had to stand at the door and shake everybody's hand. I said, I don't want to shake their hand. I don't like them people. He said, they don't like you either, Ed. Go shake their hand. Hi, I'm Ed. Hi, I'm Ed. I'm Ed. You know? <laughs> and uh, oddly enough, I've had jobs after that going all over the world into places I don't know anybody. And I have to go in and say, hi, I'm Ed. You're Just teach me how to fit in. You know how to break that click? Hi. Know how to fit in? Hi, I'm Ed. I was an outcast by choice and got a big ego about it. And uh, that was very important for me. I remember I was going to talk in Pasadena, California. And Pasadena is a wealthy area. And uh, I thought, ooh, wealthy area, I may hook up with a job. And I caught myself doing that hustle and I stopped. Because after my father's murder, I did something that was very important for me. I started all over with God. I stopped and I, my first prayer, first honest prayer I ever said is, God, I don't know if you're there or not. I sure hope so. That's right where I was at. And I started all over right where I was at because that's the only place you could grow from. All the rest is nonsense. And uh, I got down on my knees and I asked God to uh, just let me go to that meeting. I said the same prayer I said before I came down here and for this, before this retreat. So let me share the miracle you've performed in my life through Alcoholics Anonymous. Save me from my own nonsense. And I don't want anything from these people. I've already been vastly overpaid. I don't want anything. 
And I went and talked. After I got done talking, a guy came up to me after me and said, this makes no sense to me. We won't offer you a job. I said, it makes perfect sense to me. He said, have you ever been in Taiwan? I said, no. He said, have you ever been in show business management? I said, no. He said, be in my office Monday morning. That was Saturday. Thursday, I was lifting out of Los Angeles International Airport, going to Taipei, Taiwan. I was new, soon to be vice president of America on Ice. I had a cast of 62 cast and crew. I was going over to Taipei, Taiwan to negotiate contracts with the Taiwanese government while flying back and forth to Hong Kong with designer Bill Campbell out of Las Vegas designing costumes. How was your week? (laughs) Now, you know why I share that story with you? You talked me into dropping my bag of ones. There would have been a time when I wouldn't even go in for the interview because I had ones in my head that said people like you don't do things like that. You're going to end up dead. No, you're white trash. You're worthless. And you made me drop them all. And I showed up for the interview. And it was wonderful. I remember getting off the plane and everybody's just tall. (laughs) And they're looking at me and I'm looking at them, you know. I know it's just a matter of time before they tie me down. <laughs> and I had a great time over there. I loved, I loved, I loved everything about it. I loved everything about Taiwan. The people, the culture, God, it fed me like I'd never been fed before. And I, uh, I was down in Kaohsiung and I was ending my tour there. And a guy walked by me one night and he said, "You know, you'd be an excellent manager for the Harlem Globetrotters." And I said, <laughs> "Yeah." Went home to Los Angeles and I got a call from the president of the Harlem Globetrotters. Said. Uh, is this Ed Mutum? And I said, yes. And they said, we've heard wonderful things about you. Would you come up to our office? I said, I'd be honored to. Next thing you know, I'm manager of the Harlem Globetrotters. At this point, I'm eight years sober. I got less than a seventh grade education. I have no business background. I have no business by everything I know even having that job. Yet they picked me over 50 people. I don't know how powerful your God is, but mine's dazzling. Mine's amazing. He does stuff like that. And I get to go along. And all of a sudden, I traveled all over the world, met kings and queens and presidents. And all of a sudden, uh, the most amazing thing happened. I'd be in limos and in, in, in suites in the uh, finest hotels in the world, and the most amazing thing was I fit there. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I belong there. You know why? Because God gave it to me. I don't argue with gifts anymore. I just say thank you. Oh, I don't deserve I People make me crazy in A when I say, How are you? And they say, Oh, much better than I deserve. I say, Oh, God's still wrong, huh? You know? <laughs> how about just saying thank you? Would that, you know, how would that work? And that's what I say to God in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I met the daughter of the Turkish ambassador to London. She was Muslim. She was beautiful. Still the most beautiful woman I've ever known. And uh, she was wealthy, and I thought, well, our backgrounds are a lot alike, so we got married. (laughs) I didn't say all judgment had returned. And uh, we were married for 10 years, and she's an amazing woman who absolutely hates my guts, every breath I take. And uh, there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. And I don't say that to be a smart aleck because my kids have paid a heavy price. I have three children that uh, hardly have talked to me in the last 20 years because of the hatred and the anger. And I made a major mistake. I realized this last year. 
I always took the high road. I would never say anything discouraging about their mother or anything else, but I realized in not responding to the charges, they automatically assumed they were true. So I, that was a tough one to learn. I cried all day when I figured out that one because I thought, I'm trying to do the right thing. Why does this keep happening? And then I realized they got no choice then but to believe her because I would never answer, this, answer the charges, so to speak. Not put down her mother, just give him my side. Two months ago, my 20-year-old daughter called me and said, Dad, I need some money. Can you help me? And I cried because she would never asked me for anything. And I said, oh, sweetie, it's tight, but I guarantee you, you're going to get something. And something was on its way in a very, very short while after that. But I was so honored that she was trusted me enough after all that she's been through to ask me for help. I mean, that was one of the best best nights of my sobriety. And my 20-year-old uh, uh, just failed the psychological test for the Sheriff's Department in Los Angeles. And they said he has some anger issues. And he called me and he said, Dad, do you know anything about that? And I said, oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's going to come out and spend the summer with me. And I share that with you because we went for years and I didn't have any contact and there was bitterness and there was uh, just a mess. It was just not, not a nice thing. And people would say to me, I didn't know you had children. And I said, well, that's because when I talk about them, I get really sad. And I've given them to God and i got to leave them there. My way of leaving them there is just to leave them there. And that if God wants them to talk to me, they'll be calling me. And if he wants it restored, then he'll restore. My job is to be ready and present when it occurs. That's my job. And there was a tremendous freedom from that. And uh, uh, In 88, I went back out to Iowa. I'd lost everything I owned. I made some business decisions that were just bad. They were out of greed. They were, out, they were all money-based, materially based. And within six months, I lost everything. I mean, they even took the Mercedes. They really got personal. And... Uh, I thought, well, i got to start all over. Why not go home? So I went back home to Iowa from after living in Los Angeles 16 years. And I ended up with a house, a boarded-up house on East 6th Street, eight blocks from where I was in the middle of the street 18 years before that. And I opened the big book and I read the promises. And I said, you know, these promises are true. I have had to have done something wrong. This book is not wrong. My application may be. And I started from there. And my life has just been great. <coughs> Not without problems. The thing I love about sobriety is I can get have a lot of problems in life, but it doesn't have to upset me. It doesn't have to rule my day. Uh, do, does my heart get broken? Sure. How can you see some of the things that go on in the world and not shed a tear? But I don't carry it with me all day, and I don't worry about it all day. And I've learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, some years back, I was uh, at a Christian retreat, and I had a spiritual awakening at 23 years sober. And God talked to me, and my heart's been changed from that moment to this. Those of you who know what that means know what that means. Know that those of you who don't, there's no way to explain it. Except I have been a different person from that night to this. And I have remained a faithful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because this is where I found God. This is where I found the basic instruction and direction. And uh, I love uh, my God with all my heart, my mind, and my soul today to the best of my ability. Uh, and... Uh, I wouldn't change that. I'd make no apologies for my faith. You know, it's funny in AA and L and I, we always say, oh, any higher power is welcome here. You can have a rock, you can have a chair, you can have a tree, you can have a sponsor or a group. Just don't bring up Jesus, okay? <laughs> Anybody else is okay, but we're not hypocrites. Isn't that amazing? 
and uh, so I talk about my faith freely not to convert anybody but just that's the right you gave me coming in these doors I can have a God of my very own and if it's a chair if it's a marble if it's Christ I'm allowed to say it or if it's Buddha if it's Allah or if it's a crystal good for you I hope you're getting as much out of your faith as I am and if you're getting more I'd like to share that with you maybe you can teach me because it's the oneness and the inclusiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous and the welcoming of any and all faiths that I thrive in because there's so much to learn I was with a guy a little while back anybody got a pen? yeah Yeah. this guy was on a plane and you know I'm looking for gifts everywhere and, and he gave me a gift we were walking on the plane and he is at the political spectrum the exact opposite I am and it was so wonderful to have a great conversation with somebody. I don't know how it is up here, but politically in the States, everybody uh, just spews every character defect they got when they're talking about it. And it's, it was just sad. It's just sick. It's just sick. And this guy was the total... And we had a wonderful conversation. There were some honest differences. And we talked about maybe ways... That, and he pulled the pen out of his pocket. And this guy is a really powerful guy pulled his pen out of his pocket and he said you know Ed you see this pen and I'm sitting next to him there and he said at the best you're going to see is half that pen and the best I'm going to see is half that pen and that's our perspective what we always must remember is at least half the pen is unknown isn't that powerful I just love that because so many times we think we know it all and it ain't working. No, no. At your best, you're just looking at half the pen. There's more to learn. And I really love that. And I get more pens like this. It's really <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up here. I know we started a little late, but I don't want to keep you late. Uh, I, they told me I had to go to seminary. And I thought, boy, I only got a seventh grade education. So I went over to the university and I said, I'd like to go to school. And they said, how many credits do you have? And I said, I have bad credits. Why? What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> and they laughed like you laughed. And I shared with them a gift you gave me. I said, you, you don't understand. I got kicked out of school in seventh grade. I've always lived by my wits and God gave me a very good mind. But I don't know if I'm smart enough to pass a class, but I'd like you to help me find out. Would you do that? And they were most gracious. And within three weeks, because I'd taken a, a GED test as a joke in California, uh, I was able to go to school. And within three weeks, I was full-time student. And I went and I got their uh, uh, bachelor's degree. And then I went on to get my Master's of Divinity, that little 96-hour Master's degree. It took me about five, six years. I, don't, I didn't keep track. No need in keeping track when the end's what you're after. And uh, I became ordained, and I did all that. Now I'm, I'm signing up. I'm going for my doctorate. And uh, I don't say that to impress you. I, I just say that because I had told you for years in my head that education wasn't worth much. Well, to tell you the truth, I still pretty much feel that way, but it's required. Uh, <laughs> they don't teach you a lot of new news there, but, uh, uh, especially if you're working a program of recovery, especially spiritually. We have wonderful avenues. I'm, uh, I'm going to end on this. I was doing a, a sermon on forgiveness. About halfway through the sermon, I stopped. And I said, I can't talk on forgiveness. You know, I've never told the guys who killed my father that I forgave them. And I stopped right there. My congregation was 1,200 members at that time. And they kind of looked at me funny. As God would have it, two and a half weeks later, one of the guys' sentences was overturned. And I'm well-loved and well-respected in my community because of how you taught me to behave and how I want to reflect God in my life, not just a passing mood. Uh, 
and uh, when he got his sentence got overturned, they said release him or retry him. And the press came to me, and all the cameras were around. And said Reverend Mutum, what do you think? And I said, well, it's time to let him come home. Let him let let's heal. Let's see if something good can come out of this after 30 years, 27 years. And a reporter friend of mine said, Ed, he said he's been in there since he was 17. He hasn't learned a career. He doesn't. Where's he going to live? How's he going to support himself? And I said he can come live with me if he'd like. And people were taken back by that, but I'm not sure why. You welcomed me in here. What is the difference between him and I? Or you and him? You know, How many times did you almost kill somebody in a 3,500-pound bullet? How many times would it, would it have been seconds and inches and you would have been behind bars for the rest of your life? I got a call from a guy. I was up in Wisconsin last week. And uh, this guy said, I want you to talk to a guy, a sponsor. His girlfriend was killed last year, and the guy's coming up for sentencing on Tuesday. Can he call you and talk to you? And I said, oh, absolutely. Well, I didn't realize the whole story until the guy told me. He was sponsoring the guy that killed his wife. So he had the guilt of, was it, did I do something wrong as a sponsor, and should I have been there to protect my girlfriend? And the whole thing about questioning God and he said I need to know what to do and I said here's what I'm going to suggest you do I'm going to suggest you go to that hearing and you go in the spirit of forgiveness this baby's going to own you forever and I said oh your therapist will love that but if you want to be happy joyous and free you can't let it own you and he went and the young man 21 years old was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole and his sponsor cried because he felt bad for the kid. You know, who are we to judge anybody after some of the stuff we've done? Who are we to hate anybody? I mean, really. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got two or three things in my inventory. If I want to judge or be angry at somebody, I compare them to those three things. And I have said, if it's ever worse than those three things, I have the right to be annoyed. I never get past one. <laughs> ever. Well, that story went all over the world. I got a call from Oprah. Her producers, 48 Hours, Dateline, NBC, they all called, how can you do this? How can I say, it's working step eight and nine. See, if you're really working step eight and nine, you know, they didn't get that at all. But uh, that's what it is. You know, I've come to believe, and I'll talk about this more over the week, eight and nine has nothing to do with me. It has to do with repairing the damage I've done. It isn't all about me. It's about repairing the damage I've done. And that's exactly what I was doing there. Two and a half weeks later, I found myself walking down a cell into a prison I swore I'd never go in. And uh, because my brother, all my youth, I was spent there visiting my brother. And I'm uh, hearing the, my feet shuffle on the cement and I'm praying. So God, let me be the best example and reflection of you I can be. And I walk into a cell and I see a guy I hadn't seen in 27 and a half years. Last time I saw him, we were in a courtroom. And I said, you give me five minutes with him. We don't need a trial. I found myself sticking out my hand and telling him, Sherman, I just come here to tell you that I love you and I forgive you. And I believe uh, God loves you and forgives you too. And I said, I only have one request for you. And he said, what? What's that? Because I'm kind of a big, imposing guy, and he didn't quite know what to do. And I said, if there's ever anything I can do to help you improve your life, allow me to do that. And he said, I don't understand. I should have been looking you up to ask you for your forgiveness. I said, Sherman, I'm not here about your accountability. I'm here about mine. 
And I just needed to tell you that I had forgiven you a long time ago. And I'd never told you. And that's only half an amend. If you don't tell the people. And the most amazing thing, I spent two and a half hours there. And uh, we ended up friends. We ended up saying the Lord's Prayer. And the jailer and the state's, county, uh, state's attorney general was there. Everybody, we were all in tears. And we all held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. And oddly enough, Sherman and I became friends. And I kept my promise. I went up, and when he was released from prison, the county attorney asked me what I thought, and I said, you need to reduce charges and let him come home. He said, Ed, all the other families are against it. And I said, I know that. I'm just telling you where my heart says, let him come home. And that's, uh, God bless Bill, Bill Davis, the county attorney in Davenport, Iowa. He let Sherman come home, and they called me up, and I was allowed to go and pick him up. And I was allowed to bring him home. And I he didn't do well the first time he was out, 30 years of maximum security prison. He kind of get moody. And uh, he had a bad attitude, and if anybody said anything critical, he was right in their face, and he had to go back to prison. And then the next time he called me up and he said, do you know any place I could stay? And I said, I made you a deal. You can come live with me. And I picked him up and I brought him home. And, uh, uh, I was able to get him a little apartment. I had a little ho- apartment house at the time. And we went out together and we found him jobs. And, when they'd say why he was in prison, I'd stay there and explain to him, well, yeah, but you got to understand, this is the other side of that. And there's a healing going on there. And he got a lot of jobs. He just didn't have a real good work ethic. But you know the time I remember the most is when my friend Sherman was walking along the side of the road coming home from work. And when you spend 30 years in maximum security, you don't hear anything, not even birds, nothing except clangs. And I, I went and picked him up. He was walking alongside the road because I, I was running a little late to pick him up for work. And he got in my car, and he was crying. And he said, I just got to go back to prison. I can't take all this noise. I can't take all this stuff coming up behind me. I just can't take it. And you taught me what to do then. I pulled over to the side of the road, and I hugged him, and I said, Sherman, it's going to be okay. He said, you're a miracle. I'm a miracle. And I don't use the word lightly. I said, if God can bring me where he brought me, he can bring you through this. And if you can't use your belief right now, believe in my belief. And I believe in you, and I will stand behind you. That's what I remember most about that whole thing. And I wouldn't change that for a minute, because that's what you've done to me. That's what the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous has done to me. Turned me into a person I always dreamed of being and didn't think I could. This weekend, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, uh, we've decided to call it Searching for Spiritual Sobriety. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about. And hopefully we'll have time to share. Uh, I want to do some private times with anybody that wants to. And uh, we're going to talk about the steps. We're going to talk and share about one another. And uh, a lot of healing is going to go on, if you're willing. Thank you very much.